0: Thank you again for joining us. It is Neighbors in Need. I'm Sandy Waters. I have three very special guests in the studio with me. Uh, Ali O'Malley from Resolve and uh, Resolve supporter, Sheila Kennedy and the Honorable Joseph D. Valentino. Part of the stigma that still exists is because there's lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. We need to educate each other on the real issues here and what really goes on in the courts and what really goes on in a victim's life when it comes to domestic violence and what we can do. Ali, if you wanna start us off by the biggest stigma that you think people still have about domestic violence but really isn't the case.
1: Well, I think um, when we look at domestic violence through the lens of criminal justice, it seems pretty cut and dry. Yes. There's there was a crime committed in a, in an intimate setting uh, and therefore the person who committed that crime should be subject to the penalties that the law allows. Right. That seems pretty cut and dry. But the difference between a domestic violence crime and a, a, a random street crime is that relationship that exists between the victim and the perpetrator remembering that today the court defines intimate partnership in a variety of different ways. The definitions are fairly broad. So you can be married, you can be living together, you can not be married, you can just be dating. You could be a couple that has a child together. Um, So uh, and then there's different categories, as the judge can speak to, about within families. So abuse, you know, of an elder For example, a Mm. caregiver to an elder also would fall under domestic violence. Sometimes a child who's abusing a parent even before that parent is an elder could be there could be a domestic violence claim. So it's a very broad definition, but we're talking about more of those intimate relationships. So when a horrible thing happens between two people who have an intimate connection it's not so cut and dry anymore that a crime has been committed why, and the pers- person should be prosecuted for it.
0: Like I don't understand why it's such a struggle. It's almost like we reprimand those who, and it is horrible to abuse animals, but we almost give them a harsher punishment than when they, you know, lash out on the loved one. Why is that the case? It, well, in those
1: cases, it's the perception that the animal is always innocent. In a domestic violence case, and therefore, anybody who does harm to an animal is harming someone who's innocent. In a domestic violence case, the victim is never perceived as innocent. The victim is almost always perceived by the population, by the outside world looking in. The victim is always perceived as complicit in the action. They say, if that victim would just leave the relationship, this violence would end. So that stupid victim is getting what they deserve. That's how the outside world looks at this issue. And that's part of what makes it so difficult because we can't categorize every victim, a human being, victim, as not being innocent. You know, why Why is it that we presume that they're not innocent the same way we give that benefit of a doubt to an animal? So in an intimate violence relationship, the victim may want to prosecute their partner, but they're afraid. And they're because of this connection that they have, it's not somebody that they don't know. It's not like if I was mugged on the street right now, would I prosecute? You're darn right I would prosecute. Cause I have no connection to that person mm-hmm. who just did this horrible thing to me. And I want them to pay. Right. And the whole world looks at me in that case as a as a victim oh, you poor thing, you were mugged on the street. You didn't deserve that. Nobody deserves to be mugged, right? But when, when you're beat up or harmed or strangled or have all kinds of emotional abuse from somebody you're married to or in an intimate relationship with and you don't walk out the first time, people say, well, then I guess you got what you deserved. It's very
2: bizarre. You, you have to understand, too, if you look back in history, Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an expression, a man's home is his castle. Mm-hmm. And the attitude of society for years was that the man went out and he went and he worked. He brought home the money and the woman stayed home, uh, took care of the house. There's a commercial that's going around. I saw uh, one of my friends sent it to me. Uh, it, it was out in the 1950s where the guy comes home and the woman it has got her apron on and she's got yeah. her the supper ready and he sits down and he gets, she gets his slippers and gets mm-hmm. his pack of cigarettes and gives him the, you know, and he just, everything is beautiful because she was the waiter, you know, she was the servant of the house. So if you realize that that was a mentality, unfortunately for years, and you take that into the sixties and the seventies and where, The woman didn't uh, bring the uh, fellow his uh, slippers and she didn't have the supper ready and she didn't do this and that. And he took offense because he may have had some problems with domestic violence viewing when he was younger and Uh, things of that nature. And then he starts hitting her or he starts harming her in some way uh, in conjunction with what Allie just said, society's thing was, well, maybe she did something wrong here. And her position sometimes was, well, maybe I did something wrong here. Maybe I wasn't being a good wife.
0: It is crazy. Even my mother said when she was growing up, "Yeah, your uncle—he would just drink, and he would—he was crazy." But we just thought that was the crazy uncle, right? Right. right. That's. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me how that was just the way Mm -hmm. life was. Mm -hmm.
2: So in in the criminal justice system, what uh, prosecutors had to do through the years is to get that mentality out of the minds of jurors in these Mm -hmm. cases to show the jury that that's not the situation here. It's never the victim's fault, even if there is an intimate relationship or whatever it is. If the victim is assaulted, it's an assault, just like you said, cut and dry assault. But it's not so cut and dry with these kind of cases. That's the difficulty so of So when
0: it. the criminals come in, do we evaluate why they do what they do? Because the, they probably, are they a product of their environment? Is it drugs that have now changed the person who they are?
2: The criminal justice system doesn't evaluate no. defendants. Okay. You know, the, uh, the only uh, court that evaluates defendants is the drug treatment court. Okay. And they take no violent cases. You know, no violence at all. You know, no domestic violence, no rapes, murders, anything like that. It's just a people that are uh, using and they've committed a crime, usually property crime kind Cause of it thing. It seems
0: like when you inflict pain on somebody, there's something wrong with your wiring.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The solution, I don't, personally, I don't feel jail time is the solution. Mm-hmm. Can you rehabilitate in jail?
2: Well, if you assault somebody uh, and you're convicted of assault, you, you should go to jail or prison. I mean that's my feeling that's well, my opinion but um you shouldn't
0: be let out on the streets
2: <laughs> but um the what you're saying is if you go to jail or prison you, do what, yeah. you come out a better person right i i well this is another opinion no, uh, the i don't believe that happens you don't come out a better person you know unless you get some kind of treatment or you yourself decide that you're going to change yourself but that normally doesn't happen
0: In the jail, do they get counseling? or? Yes. Okay.
2: I was at the uh, prison. uh, uh, As a judge, every four years, you have to visit every institution that you, uh, every type of institution that you sentence prisoners to. So every four years, I had to go to the juvenile center. I had to go to jail, Monroe County Jail. I had to go to a prison, one of the New York State prisons. And um, the last one I went to was called Five Points, which is uh, in Seneca County, near where all the white deer are over there. And uh, that was a state-of-the-art uh, prison. It was a brand-new prison. They had like 2,000 cameras in, the, in it. And there were, uh, when I went through there, the ward, they don't call them wardens anymore, and I forgot what the name is now, but the supervisor, he uh, showed us that they had uh, drug treatment classes. Uh, they had uh, psychiatric classes where psychologists talked to them. They had a big giant room where they taught uh, carpenter skills. A big giant room where they taught plumbing skills. I mean, it was uh, it was more than just keep them in a cell uh, okay. for twenty four hours. It was uh, trying to trying to rehabilitate. I don't know how successful they were, but they they tried.
1: In Monroe County. Um in the last year, they have actually, in the Monroe County Jail, they're now doing domestic violence perpetrator classes. So if, if a, an inmate is in the Monroe County Jail because of domestic violence, they are actually receiving a program very similar to the program that happens outside of jail when a batterer is mandated into a program. So they're actually doing that program in the jail. And it's the first time in Monroe County that that's been done behind the walls of the jail. So there are efforts at trying to to engage perpetrators and understanding what their behavior was. Not that yes. you were put here by someone. You were put here by the choices that you made. So let's learn. Can
0: you are the way you are? You if know, you, Sandy,
1: I, I worked in those programs for yeah. a while. I worked in the court mandated program and there were a significant number of participants in the program who it's 26 weeks long for 90 minutes. Typically the first eight weeks of the program, the person who's in, who's ordered into the program fights us tooth and nail because they believe that they were put there because of an unjust system or because their, their victim, you know, could manipulate the court or whatever. So they come in very much believing that they're the victim and they shouldn't be there in the first place. Um, By eight weeks, they realize they still have another 16 weeks to go. And they can sit there and fight us the whole rest of the way, or maybe there's something they can learn. And I've seen a number of, in this case, those programs were, were for men. Um, I've seen a number of men have a light bulb come on uh-huh. and say, you know what? I lived with this growing up. I didn't know it was wrong or nobody ever told me. Well, yeah. Um, right. And so, yeah. and then Even in 26 weeks sounds like a long time, but it's not a long time to change a lifelong behavior, right? So there's an opportunity with the men's programs to reach a certain percentage of the men who who can decide then that they want to do something different in their life after that point.
0: Will there ever be a point where we intervene when these guys or women are young? Because you can see signs. How many times have you said you hear a story about a little boy in school who just acts out or a neighbor's kid that you're like, there's something odd about that kid. No kid wakes up in the morning and wants to hurt or inflict yeah. pain on a fellow classmate. Are the schools more keen to it? or where? It's funny, the prevention,
1: largely domestic violence or dating violence prevention doesn't generally happen. First of all, it doesn't happen consistently across all school districts. The bullying curriculum is the closest thing that we have that is being implemented with some consistency across all districts. And it has a very direct correlation. You have to wonder where the, where do bullies yeah. come from? Mm-hmm. Right. Especially when they're little so, kids. If we're yeah. talking
0: kindergartners, first, right. second, third, that's learned behavior. They don't just wake up in the morning and say, I want to punch my friend. Right.
1: So um, it's good that bullying prevention is starting at the elementary school age because with that kind of foundational information about how to treat people, you can build on that in junior high and high school and into college around a dating or an intimate violence prevention kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it isn't consistent. The requirements of curriculum are not consistent. I often joke about what is sex ed in our high schools and junior highs. It's a, it's information about the plumbing, right? We learn how our bodies work. We learn about where to put stuff um, and <laughs> what feels good and what doesn't feel good but we don't learn about kind of what happens in your brain when you decide to use your body, you know, mm-hmm. when you decide to connect with another person in an intimate way, you know, what happens to you? um, You know, where does jealousy come from? You know, if the, you know, when you're thinking about being sexually active, there's more to it than just what's physically happening yeah. in your body. And so the curriculum really does need to be updated to talk about relationships because, it's all in the context of relationships that these things happen and we generally just avoid that topic and there's still really a belief that that's a parent's job parents need to teach kids how to be in relationships with one another and not every parent's good at that
0: no. <laughs> so yeah <laughs> now if there's if, it, if the saying is true it takes a village to raise a kid if i see that there's a little boy in in school that i'm like god why you know he is the troublemaker but there's a reason why and i get this horrible gut feel? What can I do as a parent who really doesn't know that little boy or is there anything? Well, I think you can always reach out to
1: somebody in the school. You can reach out to the school social worker. You can reach out to somebody in the um, in counseling department. You could even reach out to the vice principal or somebody in the school to say, say?
0: okay, overbearing parent, be quiet. Or are they going to actually take action? You know, I
1: can't guarantee you that what's going to happen, but I think a concern, another concerned parent's expression of concern and that, you know, I don't really know what's happening, but I think there might be something going on that's bigger than this, just this kid, that there's something going on in that family. You know, are there resources you can connect the family to? That's a caring, kind thing to say. And people yeah. often ask me, how do you help a domestic violence victim? You know, you offer them resources, you listen. Um, those are the most important things that we can do as community members. Um, because you can't go charging in on your white horse and you know break up the, the yeah. whatever's happening there, but you can make yourself available to someone so that they know, and that's what you're asking the district to do in this case. You're saying, look, at just can you call the parent and yeah. see if there's something that they need? Because this seems off to me.
0: Thank you so much for everything, and hopefully um, you can take something away from this, and even if it's just that gut feel, it's you being in an unhealthy relationship or you know somebody who is just reach out to resolve I mean you're a good yep. start yeah that's that's a great point Sandy you don't always if you don't know
1: what to do, you can always call us you could always call the the new Monroe County hotline that's operated by Willow. Um, But you can call us and say, I'm really concerned about my friend. I'm concerned about my neighbor. I'm concerned about what's going on with this kid in school. What can I do? And we can help you come up with some ideas. Um, You know, we're not going to change this issue if we don't get out of our own comfort zone and figure out how to to do something.
0: Yeah. The best way to reach out to you is? Up by phone.
1: 585-425-1580. And our office operates on regular business hours. So nine to five every day you can reach someone. Okay. Wonderful. And the
0: website is resolve-roc.org.